0: When your path to business growth gets rocky, Adroll makes digital marketing a walk in the park. Work directly with advertising experts at Adroll to launch cross-channel campaigns that deliver efficient ROI. Sign up at adroll.com/ROI.
1: Hello and welcome to
2: Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Monaco.
1: Alyssa, do you remember how House Speaker Mike Johnson compared himself to Moses during what he thought was a closed prayer breakfast? I do recall. I do recall. I do think it's kind of funny that he is now successfully dividing a Red Sea. Ah. <laughs> but as Speaker of the House and a Republican, that's kind of the opposite of what he should be doing. Truly. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that was a little bit of a monkey paw comment. You know, like, (laughs) I'm Moses. Okay. Er, You sure are.
2: Yeah, now you are.
1: (laughs) Alyssa, when we were putting the show together this week, I was like, this is a really well-rounded show. It's
2: got a little bit of everything for everybody.
1: I'm really glad we got Taylor Lorenz on the show. Great interview. talk about—well, thank you very much. Um, Her interview with Chaya Rachik, uh, a.k.a. Libs of TikTok— is a Hall of Fame exposing the dipshits interview. And it was so cool to talk to her about her process and what was going through her mind as she was doing that. Um, And then we got to talk to some of our friends at The 19th News. We love The 19th. Love The 19th. And they have a new documentary out. Yeah, Erin Haynes and Princess Hairston are two of the powerhouses behind that new documentary that kind of shows how, I don't know, watching it, I was like, the news could be so much better. And thanks to the 19th, it is things are starting to nudge in the right Mm -hmm. direction. Uh, We also get to talk about the news, talk about the fallout from the Alabama IVF Supreme Court ruling. Keeps on coming. It keeps on coming. Republicans are trying to back away, but we're running at them faster. We also have some news about a new announcement from First Lady Jill Biden. Mm -hmm. And we have a shout out to... A young lady, a little toast. <laughs> Every time we talk about her, I feel so old. Um, but we get to shout out a young lady who is using her voice to uh, elevate the cause of reproductive justice, and it's yep. really, really fucking cool. Welcome to Hysteria, the podcast by and for extrauterine embryos. Yes, aka yes. people. Okay, uh, Alyssa. Fallout continues as a we rep- knew it would. We knew it we would. We knew it would. And you know, Just the beginning. We are seeing left and right Republicans try to change the subject to literally anything else. Joe Biden mm-hmm. eating ice cream. Hunter Biden eating other things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but look. The Republican Party is desperately trying to do damage control after a very unpopular Alabama Supreme Court ruling effectively outlawed IVF in the state last week. It also drew attention to the fact that the rest of the -the run-of-the-mill Republicans have in the past advocated for IVF to be outlawed, with some exceptions. Hmm. But Hmm. this is a mainstream Republican viewpoint. It turns out people don't like that. People got mad. And now Republicans have been doing the absolute most to pretend that they never said the things that they have definitely said or sponsored the bills that they've definitely sponsored over and over for years. A mass Homer Simpsoning into the bushes, if you will. They are backpedaling, they are scrambling, they are spinning. Alyssa, what is your favorite word for what Republicans are trying to do with their long established views
2: on IVF now that it's clear that those views in practice make people very, very mad? Let me set the scene like Sophia and Golden Girls. It's the Motown 25th anniversary, 1983. Michael Jackson debuts the moonwalk. There are sparkly socks. It's like he's floating on air. Aaron, these guys should know. You can't moonwalk your way out of this one. They <laughs> cannot try to do some jazz hands and some sparkly socks and like float into, you know, side stage and thinking we're not going to see everything they've been doing for quite a long time hmm And it seems like the,
1: the things that Republicans are trying to do to pretend that they don't believe the thing that they believe is uh, kind of—it it falls into a few categories. Um, in states like Alabama, state lawmakers are scrambling to get a law on the books that would exempt IVF-generated, IVF-fertilized embryos from the state's abortion ban, which defines life as beginning at conception, mm-hmm. Wh- which is weird because— That would mean that in Alabama, embryos only count as viable if they're implanted in a uterus. Yeah, it sounds like what they're doing. Which is a very weird question, or it's a very weird—it gets us into weird territory, right? Like, okay, so killing an embryo is murder if it's in a woman's body, but it's not murder if it's not in a woman's body. That's like a law that makes it legal to shoot somebody only if they're not on your property.
2: Right, <laughs> right. Exa- Aaron, exactly, Erin. Like, exactly, like, like, what? It's goofy. It's nonsensical. It's uh, s- stupid. Yeah, it's stupid, and it's also it doesn't make any
1: sense. There are fourteen states right now that are currently considering personhood laws. That mm. would make IVF effectively illegal, and as far as I know, not many of them have carve-outs for IVF. There are some state-level lawmakers that are trying to scramble, but then, again, if you make a carve-out for—if if life begins at conception, then why is something not alive in a lab but alive in a woman's
2: body? That All this make happens, Erin, every time we talk about it. This always happens when people who shouldn't even be in Congress try science, <laughs> <laughs> lawyers need to stop doing science. Stop. I'm saying
1: that you're smart at words. You're smart at arguing, right? Just stop science. Just because yeah. you're getting it wrong. <laughs> yeah, his, you are. You are failing biology. You are failing biology, and that's everybody's problem now. Um, yes. Okay. So another another problem with a carve out for ivf um saying that okay life begins at conception except it doesn't if it's ivf it, it doesn't make any sense just it's it's a nonsense argument um but it also defangs republicans long term strategy which is has been out in the open for a very long right. time so i'm always surprised when people are like what they want to ban birth control it's like have you ever read a heritage foundation paper Like, not that I recommend it. It sucks, and I don't like it. But if you want to know what conservatives think about things like contraception, abortion, IVF, birth control, anything, um, it's out there. It's out there. There are papers out there that have—there's a decades-long paper trail of conservatives opposing contraception. And if life doesn't begin at conception for the purposes of IVF, then how can you argue that— Certain birth controls that may interfere with the implantation of a fertilized egg, like IUDs, mm-hmm. uh, like Plan B, yeah. and like you know, there's not very much. I guess the evidence that this is real is, is thin. But some hormonal contraceptives could theoretically work sure. by impeding implantation into the uterus. Um, and we don't need to get into all the biology of that. Although I would love it if some lawmakers would. Yeah. Um, but but here's the thing that that defangs this long game that Republicans have been playing for a long time to roll back contraception access. So, yeah, and the other thing that Republicans are doing in addition to trying to pass nonsensical laws are releasing statements.
2: They're the releasing best. statements. The best they are bringing their best wordsmithing to these statements, Aaron.
1: Yeah, Alyssa, they
2: were they're releasing some statements. Can you give us an example of some of these statements? Let me give you a nice tasty one from the RNC last Friday when they told candidates to express their support for IVF, oppose restrictions on the treatment and campaign on expanding access to it. Quote, it is imperative that our candidates align with the public's overwhelming support for IVF and fertility treatments, the NRSC said, calling the ruling fodder for Democrats hoping to manipulate the abortion issue for electoral gain. It's not
1: fodder if it's the truth, you fucking
2: Hmm. assholes. (laughs) Oh, my God. They are. These are such linguistic gymnastics that they're all doing that, like, hold on. Wait, can we read uh, Nikki Haley? Because she's a mess, too. Mm -hmm. Nikki's a wreck. Nikki reflected the awkward position for Republicans on Wednesday when she told NBC she supported the decision and thought that frozen embryos made using IVF are babies, a few hours later, she seemed to walk back her initial comment. I didn't say that I agreed with the Alabama ruling Haley told CNN, but she added she still believes in embryos and unborn baby. What? Nikki, girl, girl! That is an unacceptable answer. That is it's completely unacceptable. unacceptable. You do not get to keep trolling for delegates across America with that answer. Well, here's the, here's the thing about
1: IVF. Um, IVF is a really tough process, which we talked about on last week's show. It's physically very tough on couples. It's emotionally very tough on couples or individuals who are going through it. Um, And there's a fairly high failure rate. It's not foolproof. Um, In nature, Mm -hmm. a high percentage of fertilized eggs that become embryos are just never going to be viable. Basically, sperm meets egg. They come together. There's a full set of instructions on how to make a human. Sometimes those instructions are just nonsense. They just won't work. And in those cases, if it's if it happens inside of a woman's body, oftentimes, unfortunately, that results in a miscarriage because that embryo could never—the instructions do not— it's like getting an, a box of Ikea furniture that's ne, it's never going to be a dresser. You know what I mean? Like, it's not—you can't—these pieces, it doesn't work. It's better—it's like the wisdom of the body to recognize that and start over. Now, with IVF, they have the ability to see in a lab which embryos fit into the category of could potentially become a viable human being and don't have the juice genetically. And so they frequently discard the embryos that don't have the juice genetically. They can also screen for things like Trisomy 18 uh, and Trisomy 21 and other really catastrophic or, or difficult to navigate chromosomal abnormalities. And so discarding embryos in the IVF process is part of it. Like, it is part of it. Like, There is no there's no getting around like, oh, we're only gonna implant one embryo at a time and every single embryo that gets made we have to give a chance to. No, that is like wasting people's time. That is putting them through unnecessary like physical and emotional ordeals. And expense. And expense. And also like, you know, time is of the eff- of the essence for a lot of people when they're going mm-hmm. through IVF. And you don't just have like four months to waste on implanting an embryo that is just never going to take. It's just like, uh, so this is this is a the RNC is in quite a bit of a pickle. Um, the candidates are in a bit of a, a bit of a pickle. Um, the statements acknowledging that they're in a pickle are like, we've got to support IVF. Um, So here we have Tammy Duckworth, Senator, Democrat from Illinois, coming forward to be like, great, I agree. Let's protect IVF. This week on Wednesday, she introduced a bill to federally protect in vitro fertilization and other fertility treatments to the Senate, um, asking for unanimous consent, basically daring Republicans to block its passage. Alyssa, what do you think they did? What did they do? What do you think they're going to do?
2: They're going to block it. They're going to block it. They Unanimous it. consent. She really threw the gauntlet. It only takes one idiot to uh, muck up that procedurally on the Senate floor. But, you know, they're not going to let it pass because, Aaron. they're saying now this should just be a
1: state's rights issue. But, OK, so, OK, it should be a state's rights issue. issue that's what they're saying. What there are saying. 14 states currently considering or with personhood laws on the books, 14 states. Feels so a bit wanna, like hot potato, doesn't it? So you want to protect it, but you don't want to protect it. What does it
2: what 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 are this you talking is, about? Here's the thing. I am just waiting, you know, for all the people who are like, oh, you know, we'll see how this nets out, like it's a hot potato. What other women's health issues, are they going to deem a state's rights issue? I mean, Aaron, what if someone needs a hysterectomy, which would then mean they could never have children? We're going to have to get that shit approved at some point, too? Like, this is out of fucking control. Honestly,
1: Alyssa, you know, it sounds very bleak, but and I, and I really hate to try to predict things like this because it scares people. But I think that people should be scared about what's coming down the pike because they played the long game. Yes. So we should, too. Um I do believe that next on the agenda in addition to trying to make contraception like actually effective, long lasting, right. easy to reverse contraception off the market or make it more difficult to acquire um or making it so that insurance companies don't cover it like just mm-hmm. m- putting roadblocks in between women and reliable contraception I think they're also going to try to put roadblocks in between women and prenatal genetic testing. Um, I'm sure, which in a lot of cases contributes to people choosing to terminate for medical reasons. Again, a heartbreaking, emotionally horrible decision that people make. Nobody is like skipping into the abortion clinic after they get a terminal diagnosis from prenatal screening. Nobody's totally happy about that. Um, but I also think they're going to go after long-term, like permanent birth control, sterilization,
2: I to- without question
1: and And it's already a nightmare. Have you known anybody who's had to go uh, who's who's tried to get sterilized as a woman without children no. or as a young woman Mm-mm. uh i've heard I've heard zero good stories about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That process is really tough. Most doctors won't do it. People just assume condescendingly that somebody who is maybe 30 years old, who is like— going to change
2: their mind. Yeah, they're going
1: to change their mind. I know better than you about your own body and what you're going to want. And I can see um, sterilization being more difficult. All of these things, by the way, are issues that uh, a lot of religious organizations stand behind. The Catholic Church is definitely anti-sterilization, anti-birth control, um, anti-IVF. Some of Mm -hmm. this—oh, my God. We have to put this heritage paper in our show notes. It's about, like, American evangelical denominations. There's, like—there's a truly wacky belief that part of the reason IVF is bad or surrogacy is immoral is because it introduces a third person to the marital bed. Like, you should only be getting pregnant from just straight-up fucking— Wow. (laughs)
2: Like, these people
1: are, like, certified creeps, like— absolute creeps i mean
2: aaron doesn't it all come down to like one of the one of the great quotes from the past few days actually came from alabama's own king of dunces tommy tuberville oh, dumbest, senator. It, dumbest senator dumbest senator who was at cpac and you know was asked about embryos or children and you know what his response was real cut to the chase bullshit we need more kids Aaron, that's what he said. That's his response to this whole thing that's happening. We need more kids. And then he said, we need people to have an opportunity to have kids. Okay. He is like, he is like, this is so gross. But it's like when you have one of those sticky traps in your house Mm -hmm. and you catch a mouse and he's stuck on the sticky trap and he's like over my dead body and just chews off his own arm. That's Tommy Tuberville. (laughs)
1: hmm hmm Tommy Tuberville is mind-bendingly dumb. And uh, he has as much power in the U.S. Senate as, you know, let's say Alex Padilla, who represents, you know, 25 million people, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, cool. Abolish the Senate. I don't, I don't think it's good. Oh, and one more thing before we end talking about this story and move on to something slightly more positive. Um, in 2023, there was a uh, bill that never made it to vote called the Life at Conception Act in the House of Representatives. It was sponsored by Alex Mooney of West Virginia and co-sponsored by 124 Republicans. Yep. Um, And... Uh, there are some of those Republicans who have tried to backpedal desperately since people have been like, hey, you know, IVF, like Michelle Steele of California's 45th yeah. district, um, who has children through IVF and uh, mm. supported this bill. Um, there are a lot of people that really have uh, shown their complete hypocrisy. They're totally fine with making other people's lives more difficult um, after they've enjoyed the benefits that certain medical advances yep. uh Offer. All right, uh, let's move on to something a little bit more positive. Jill
2: Biden, not a medical doctor, but cares about health. Not regardless. a medical doctor, but gives a shit. Uh, in an effort to address the severe lack of funding and research into women's health, Jill Biden announced that the White House Initiative on Women's Health Research will give a hundred million dollars in federal funding. Into just that. The money comes from the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, or ARPA-H, which is under the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. So, Erin, in the coming weeks, the agency will solicit ideas for groundbreaking research to address women's health. When she first discussed it a few months ago, Dr. Biden said her primary goal was to close the funding gaps in research that would improve doctors' abilities to diagnose and prevent diseases primarily impacting women. Hey. Now, this is great. Thank you. Dr. B, we appreciate it. I do just have to be a little bit of a sad Sally though. Okay. <laughs> because Erin, it's been 30 years since the NIH Revitalization Act mandated women and people of color be included in clinical trials of funded research. Yet women's health research remains underfunded and under-resourced. Ah. Fun fact. Fun fact. Is this going to be fun? Is this fun being it's used It's going to be a little fun. Okay. It's going to be a little fun. Approximately 6,000 women every day enter menopause. Yet in a 2023 carrot fertility study of 2,000 women, fewer than 20% understood potential symptoms before menopause began, and 80% cited menopause as a workplace challenge. Now, Erin, every woman except those who had their ovaries removed before puberty will experience menopause. As of 2020, there are over 167 million women living in America who will either are in menopause or will be in menopause. So I want to say that the hundred million is bravo, but the world needs to still do better. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. My favorite fact, my, I mean, favorite, no, I'm using it ironically. My favorite fact about medical research and women's bodies is that the reason that they don't research women's bodies is because it's too hard.
2: It's hard. to like why play. it's more expensive for us to get our shirts dry cleaned. <laughs> they want to
1: play medicine on easy mode, and they think that they're fucking geniuses. It's like you are playing the game on, like, baby mode. Like, you can't die in this game where you're just Do testing. Do better. Them. It is... It's really frustrating. And yeah, $100 million is great. You're right, Alyssa. But that is less than a dollar per person who goes through menopause. Just saying.
2: No. Just saying. No. And it's not even like the whole $100 million is earmarked for any sort of menopause research. Yeah. It's just like I just needed to highlight still how we are so underserved. Heart <laughs> attacks medically. and heart
1: disease in women. So misunderstood, underdiagnosed. Yes. Um, we also don't understand chronic illness, which impacts primarily women, things like chronic fatigue syndrome, things like uh, – Cro- I think Crohn's disease tends to yes. impact
2: women more than men. Listen, nine. you know that we're in trouble. When Oprah Winfrey went to several doctors – she did a whole uh, like Instagram live about this a couple of months ago. Oprah Winfrey went to several doctors and a cardiologist because they thought she was having a heart problem. Turned out, menopause.
1: Oh, my God.
2: You know what? The first time I had a panic
1: attack, I thought it was having a heart attack.
2: Yeah. I'm mean, sure. Similar symptoms. You know
1: what? I have a pitch. I think what we should do is have another round of, like, mandatory sex education. Like— For Congress? When, no, for everybody. I think at, at 25, mandatory sex education. We need to remind men where the clitoris is. <laughs> um and uh, at around age twenty-five, when it's like you don't know what you're doing at all, um, the, here's a link. Yeah, <laughs> here's a here is a model, and we're not giggling. Here is a model <laughs> of anyway, uh, men who have sex with women should be should have to take another sex ed class that teaches them more about human reproduction, uh, birth control, contraception, and their own sexual health, and uh, people who are in the LGBTQ plus community. I feel like they probably have—I uh, feel like overall, my friends in the queer community tend to be better educated.
2: Educated, 100%. Um, but Absolutely. like I think everyone
1: should have to take a refresher sex ed when they're 25 and then another one at 40.
2: And Do you think Congress would be more or less dangerous with better medical education? Less, absolutely.
1: Less. Who would right? be more danger? I mean, although Rand Paul is a medical doctor, he's an eye doctor. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm not
2: saying that that's not. I'm just saying, give me someone who's got some internal medicine experience. Yeah, I would trust a proctologist
1: to make rules about the female reproductive system more than I would trust an eye doctor. Because yeah, least that's my point. It's no same, no shade on eye doctors. No, but. proctologists practice in the same neighborhood though. So right, you know, get in there. Yeah, I'm really—I'm glad for this program. I hope that it is the the first of many steps to start to address the giant gender gap in medical care and the understanding of the way that the human body works. Um, Here's a story that is concerning and strange. Mm -hmm. Um, An Ohio man who planned to carry out a mass shooting of women at Ohio State is the first incel to be convicted of a federal hate crime. He's a self-described incel. I'm not going to name him. No, no. Because who cares what his name is? Um, He was originally convicted and served time for making terrorist threats and now has been convicted of a hate crime and has been awaiting sentencing. This case is very scary. And it sort of reminds me of, like, the opposite of the Ethan Crumbly thing. Like, in Ethan Crumbly's case, his parents, like, supplied him with a gun and did nothing and saw all the warning signs and did nothing. And in this case, uh, this young man's mom was front and center at being like, do something about my fucking— yeah, he's a problem. Right. So he was initially arrested in March of 2020. Uh, He's from Southwestern Ohio. And his mom, after his mom called 911 and said her son was acting erratically and went into his room with a gun. She also said that she'd found notes and she was worried that he planned to harm others. Good mothering. Look, good mothering. uh, That sucks if you have a son that is that Wayward and destru- destructive, um, but she did the exact right thing. Um, he eventually pleaded guilty to making a terrorist threat and served a 17 month state prison sentence. Um, and he beat out for a few months um, when the FBI finished going through his stuff. They found, uh, actually, he was working on something a lot worse than the initial thing that he'd gone away. Can I
2: just, before we go further, can I just, I have a small issue with this. Uh Uh-huh. Why did it take them so long? (laughs) I don't know. I'm just saying, they discovered 3,400 messages. He was in prison for 17 months. Mm -hmm. I feel like he shouldn't have gotten out. That's just all I'm saying. Again...
3: I
1: feel like the FBI would benefit from hiring more young women who are the person in their friend group who investigates online dates of their friends. The tenacity Absolutely. The tenacity and drive and uh, web skills of those young women is I think unmatched in federal law enforcement. They need an army of shoshas from girls. I need, they need 100%. They need an army of shoshanas. Uh, to investigate potential incel crimes because you know Shoshana would have been through this by herself before she, he, he was out of prison. She would have made it
2: through his first trial before she had found these messages.
1: No, and this this individual also posted more than 450 times on incel forums. They also found that he idolized other incels who had uh, killed people mm. uh, and carried out terrorist att- attacks. They found disturbing memes on his phone um he brought a bulletproof vest a hoodie that said revenge on it and a Bowie knife and an AR15 with a bump stock which makes the gun fire like an automatic weapon and he right. bought a ghost gun he was building a an arsenal um and he also wrote a manifesto so he had which
2: you know his Chet- the okay you know that you have his manifesto was called a hideous symphony a manifesto written by, we're not saying his name, the socially exiled incel. Oh, so unique. Oh, oh wow. Oh my
1: God, get a grip. While he was I... on vacation in Greece, sir, close the computer and look up at the beauty Have around some you. some Uzo. Greece my God. is magical. A magical place. Is You're magical. on vacation in Greece, and instead of enjoying the volcanic beaches of the Cyclades or the incredible food of Kolonaki, you are—you have your face Writing in your computer. A what a waste of a Greek vacation! I mm-hmm. would have enjoyed taking that vacation, my friend. Oh my goodness, Saki as the Greeks would say. Um, <laughs> he also wrote notes on hotel stationery and laid out a plan to target women at OSU. He wanted to kill thousands of people. So the controversy here is all of this happened before he was first put in prison. Mm-hmm. He served his time. He didn't do other stuff after he got out. And now they're like, oh, wait a minute. You probably should have been in prison for longer.
2: Right. <laughs> um.
1: Yeah, we got to get some Shoshanas on the case. That's we, Yeah, this, this sh- is problematic. This is problematic. He shouldn't have been put in prison before they knew the extent of what he was— doing um he should have been in prison in a way that was like commensurate to the damage that he planned to do because right you know you got it he
2: shouldn't be out like is he well now do you know what i mean yeah after i'm I'm literally at howler monkey decibel in my inside my own head i'm so annoyed by this <laughs> but like but i mean truly 17 months That's, he's just walking out and about i feels d- it, they gotta sort this out fast
1: I don't know how fixable these people are. I know through the prison system. that's that's my my pushback on this. like I is, mean, I
2: agree with that is but it also good,
1: like there needs to be some sort of program that these people can go through that is punitive but
2: also educational. Totally agree but but don't necessarily think this person should potentially be at like the mall right now.
1: No. Nobody should be at the mall right now. The malls are dying. Yeah, it's a complicated case, but, you know, first incel ever to serve a, a federal Good. crime, whatever. Yeah, um, we're for it. Honestly, I I, I don't want to—I'm I'm anti-prison in general. I think it's, it's pretty bad, the system that we have. Um, but I also am—when people put together plans, when people amass armories— and when people say that they're going to commit hate crimes against any group, um, I think we should just be like, Okay, you're gonna commit a hate crime. Okay. Like, I don't think that that I don't think that you have the freedom to pretend that you're gonna do that. That's that's right. I think where I think, yeah, okay, cool. We're taking you seriously. Now you should go to jail. Okay. Alyssa, we got a toast today. We're both, we're both on the old—I feel, like, old every time we talk about this person. Um, Listen, at least I didn't have to Google her. I <sighs> did know who she was. Look, she. every generation gets the Alanis Morissette and the Fiona Apple <gasps> that they have earned. And this is this generation's Fiona Apple Alanis Morissette, I
2: would say. Fiona Apple. Do you know, I remember the day Paper Bag came out. Um, Okay, (laughs) Olivia Rodrigo topping our favorite Gen Z list. Last Friday, Rodrigo kicked off her guts, which I just love saying guts. Guts. She kicked off her guts world tour in Palm Springs by announcing her global reproductive rights initiative, Fund for Good. Way to go, girl. In a TikTok video she posted before the show, she talks about how the fund will seek to support all women, girls, and people seeking reproductive health freedom. The fund will directly support community-based nonprofits that champion things like girls' education, support reproductive rights, and prevent gender-based violence. I love that Olivia
1: Rodrigo, she's been out and proud supporting reproductive choice in a very— courageous and mm-hmm. in-your-face manner. And talk about—this is going to date me even further, but it reminds me a little bit of, like, Bikini Kill performing in front of a big banner that says abortion on demand and without apology, you know?
2: I like, don't remember that, but I'll take your word for it.
1: I think—I w- mean, it would have been more during your time than during my time. I'm just remembering—I'm <laughs> just remembering the documentary that I saw about Kathleen Hanna. hmm Anyway, but there was a—there was a real— a real kind of punk sensibility in riot girl culture back yes. then and a very political, you know, when we we interviewed Slater Kinney on this show, and they were very political and outspoken about abortion rights as well. And it's really cool to see young women who are, you know, kind of at the epicenter of what is cool and what young women look up to, um, taking up the mantle. I I think yes. I I I I again,
2: I'm sounding so old, but it's like. I'm proud of you, Olivia. Yeah, do a little pat on the <laughs> head. She is, Rodrigo's going to be partnering with National Network of Abortion Funds. They will have a table at each of her concerts, and we will link National Network of Abortion Funds in our show notes so you can learn more.
1: Congratulations and a toast to Olivia Rodrigo. Guts. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, an interview with our pal Taylor Lorenz. And welcome back. You're listening to Hysteria, the podcast for people who would wake up early any day to watch a hateful shitheel get exposed as a boring idiot. Our guest today is a technology and internet culture reporter for The Washington Post, but you can also read her on her substack and in print. She's the author of Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. Taylor Lorenz, welcome to Hysteria. Thank you so much for having me. So, Taylor, you are often in the thick of important conversations about technology, culture, power, etc. But this week, you went mega viral for an interview with Chaya Rachik, the hateful wretch behind the anti-LGBTQ gimmick hate blogging operation Libs of TikTok. So we're going to play a clip from that interview for our listeners in case they haven't heard it. And, uh, you know, then we'll, we'll go from there.
4: If you eradicate transgenderism, which I believe you suggested in a post today. No, I never suggested that. Oh, okay. You reposted a post that was advocating for that. What would happen to the people that have already medically, socially, completely transitioned and are leading happy lives? What would happen to them? I mean, what's your plan for, for that? If transgenderism doesn't exist, which it seems like you are that's what you believe, what happens to all the people living happy lives as trans people? Well. It-
0: First of all, the whole trans is—it's based on a lie. You can't change your—you can't change your gender. Okay, but so they could—they could go live their 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 life.
4: I mean, I can't tell someone what to do in their in their house. Sounds like you do want to tell people what to do in their house.
1: Okay, Taylor, how would you describe what happened
4: during that interview? I mean, it was just a disaster. She was totally fundamentally unprepared to defend her the the beliefs that she's built her entire platform on.
1: Yeah. And how does it feel to be the new Isaac Chodner?
4: No. Oh, my God. Please. (laughs) Isaac. No. Isaac. (laughs) Um, I can can never. He's I mean, it honestly—so the interview
1: is what? You were supposed to sit down for, like, five minutes or something, right?
4: Yeah. She said she would give me five minutes, and then she just sort of kept answering questions. And
1: you just kept going. Um, If you haven't watched the 55-ish minute video— um, I highly recommend you do, but also give yourself a little sweet treat at the end because it is kind of a a tough watch, even as somebody who really is not rooting for Chaya Rachik in any way, shape, or form. It is just—she just cannot stop. Um, did anything about this interview surprise you?
4: So I've covered the content creator industry for almost 15 years, and I've dealt with a lot of right-wing content creators and sort of right-wing trolls, and you normally um When they meet up with you in person, they're doing that because they want to get some sort of viral clip out of it that they can use against you to discredit you, to get you in trouble with your job, you know, to make you upset. So they're trying to trigger you. What they normally do is, like, the minute you see them, they sort of start trolling you or bringing up your controversies. So I was very kind of prepared for that, and she just couldn't do it. Like, she had a t-shirt. She wore a t-shirt with my face on it to the interview, but she never, like, She never addressed it or brought it up at all. And obviously, I just didn't mention it. She also showed up with this box of masks. I'm super, super immunocompromised. So I wear... I normally don't always wear a mask outside, but I... Especially if I'm in close contact with someone, I'm going to wear a mask. So I had a mask on. She shows up with this box of masks and she's like, do you want a mask? And I was like, no, thanks. I already have one. Don't worry about it. And she just like put it on the table and then kind of just like never that was it. Like she, and then she never got, she never asked me any sort of proactive questions. All of her questions were like hundred percent in response to what I was saying. So it was, the whole thing was just bizarre. Like say what you will about Nick Fuentes and some of these other guys, like they are there to get the content.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: I, I don't know what she got out of this.
1: Mm-hmm. Were there any moments when you had to hold back an emotional reaction?
4: I got like the entire interview. I mean, everything she was saying is ghoulish. I will say, I think a lot of people, you know, especially young people, they're used to YouTube, like, debate culture, and most of them have not seen a journalistic interview before. And I do think some people online were like, well, why weren't you fighting with her? Why didn't you debunk? And I, I'm i kind of like, well, I'm doing an interview, so I'm really there to ask the questions. But, I mean, when she said some cultures are just different or something, she said a bunch of racist better. stuff very early. Yeah, she said some
1: were better than others. yeah. And- it was like, okay. You're wearing a t-shirt of a reporter. Uh, well, maybe we should maybe we shouldn't talk about like who's doing better here culturally speaking. Um how did you set up this interview?
4: I had been trying to get comment from her for a week. Um I had written this big feature on sort of the impact that she's having in Oklahoma, just terrorizing LGBTQ people and um I mean I would I had no idea that she... She said, I'll give you comment in person, and obviously, I thought fantastic because I've tried to get her in person for years. I tried Mm -hmm. to get her in person famously, you know, when I unmasked her. I visited her house to try to get comment from her. So, um, you know, I love seeing these people from behind the screen because... I think a lot of them really lose their luster once you take them out from behind their Twitter accounts. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, your interview
1: really exemplifies how great of a journalist you are. Like, you knew when to push back, when to move on, and your attitude. I was just like, how is she so chipper in the face of—I mean, but but it felt like a means to an end. Like, Was it stressful, exhilarating, casual in the moment as you were just kind of, in some cases, just really like going through questions quickly as she was just kind of acting like a surly teen at you?
4: Yeah, I know. And I think that can be jarring again for people like she is a hate figure and sometimes it's frustrating to see someone being polite and friendly and kind of cheerful and I get it. They wanted me. I mean, there was people that were like, the only acceptable way to leave this interview is in handcuffs, you know? And I, trust me, I get it. I understand that sentiment. Like my blood was boiling uh, a lot of the stuff she says, but as a journalist, you, you have to kind of maintain that air because you don't want to give them anything. You don't want to give them that clip of you getting angry or upset or whatever. And ultimately it's my job. And, you know, I've interviewed a lot of really, really ghoulish people for my job and, um, you know, you just have to kind of keep those feelings uh, quiet in yourself. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. an
1: appalling person. Yeah. How do you feel about the fit that she has thrown in response to the interview? And can you confirm that you're not a lizard person right now on the record?
4: <laughs> Obviously not. And I, I, you know, not only is she as a Jewish woman, you know, endorsing the Great Replacement Theory, she's also promoting an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory of lizard people. It's bizarre. Um <laughs> But, yeah, she was really upset that I posted that full—that I posted the full interview, Um, of course, because she didn't want the full interview out there. She wanted to be able to selectively edit it, and I think it's very telling that the only part she was able to selectively edit was, like, some clip of, like, a voiceover of her asking me about my age, um, which is totally irrelevant to my job. It's just this obsession that she has with, like, my personal details, but— Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. I mean, she had a meltdown on Twitter, and then she completely stopped promoting it, and then she started blocking and hiding any reply of anybody that responded to her tweets with it.
1: Mm -hmm. And what do you hope viewers who didn't previously know much about libs of TikTok—and God bless them if they didn't know previously very much about libs of TikTok—what do you hope viewers take away from your interview if this is all they know about this person?
4: I really hope that they actually read my story because I think my story provides a lot of context and background for my interview and also can help you really understand the damage and harm this woman has done. I mean, there's so much that she was saying in that interview that I didn't, you know, that I think could use extra context, such as in the interview, Um I mean, she looks uh, terrible in the interview. I think it, like, really demystifies her, and I think it just takes away a lot of her power. Um, There's value in kind of engaging with these people if you can do that, Um, and I do think it sort of helped just expose, you know, that her whole sort of anti-trans ideology is built on quicksand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I hope if if people take nothing away from that, you know, they realize that she's, she's not... She's she's full of shit, basically. <laughs> if I but,
1: but you know, that. quick, no, of course. Um, but Quick Stand is is still pretty dangerous. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about your article and and uh, what role she has somehow in uh, Oklahoma and the education system there now?
4: Yeah. So my story talks about her growing influence in the state of Oklahoma. Ryan Walters, who's um, head of education there, has given her this appointment with the state, uh, basically overseeing the library books in public schools. She's obviously tried to remove um, everything that has to do with LGBTQ issues, including books like To Kill a Mockingbird and sort of classic literature, um, because it has to, you know, it mentions something to do with LGBTQ rights or people. Um, She's terrorized people. I mean, I think her ideology and this anti-LGBTQ hate that she's championed through her platform um, has bled out into the real world and is causing real-world violence and hatred. And a lot of LGBTQ people in the state are terrorized. She's also gotten multiple—you know, she's gotten a principal uh, reprimanded she's for being for doing drag. She's gotten an LGBTQ teacher fired, at least one. Um, she's gotten a lot of other people pushed out of jobs, pushed out of positions of power, basically, just because they're LGBTQ. So she's just an incredibly dangerous and harmful person. And mm-hmm. I really— Hope that she doesn't amass more political power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've read that she has uh, a lot of
1: times people that are targets of her ire end up getting things like bomb threats and they get swatted and um, their lives are just kind of made to be hell because she just seems to be on this like flight of extremely online hate whimsy um, and it's it's like it's very shocking to see that. You know, I I saw somebody describe your interview with her as kind of exposing the fact that she's just like gamified the algorithm and like gotten figured out a way to sort of like hit the like slot machine button over and over again and get like three cherries, three cherries, three cherries with like attention and likes and validation. And now she's like in in charge of library books in a state she's only been to once, which I learned from your interview with her, which is pretty crazy.
4: Yeah, and I think it's really important to remember that because I think people, especially these days, people think of power solely on the internet and they solely sort of understand power through the lens of like, how many followers does this person have or... You know, they're they're this figure online. She has political power. Even if you take away all of her followers, she's directly informing anti-LGBTQ legislation in Florida, according to Desantis's press secretary. Um, You know, obviously she has this role in Oklahoma. She's playing a bigger role in other state politics as well. Um, So I think it's just really important to, you know, report on this woman and, um, you know, expose her and kind of just critically report as much as possible because ignoring people like this does not make them go away. hmm
1: So, Taylor, you've made a lot of powerful enemies. Uh, which one are you most proud of? Like, which one, if you could just, like, polish your enemies and line them up on a shelf, which one would be front and center?
4: Well— I just love that like people with billions of dollars spend any amount of time thinking about me. I think it's hilarious, so I guess I don't know, maybe Elon Musk, like <laughs> or Mark <laughs> Andreessen, just one of these, but like if I was a billionaire, first of all, I would never amass that amount of wealth, but like I would you would, couldn't catch me on the internet, you know, so
1: like McK- you'd be like a you. Mackenzie Scott. you would be just being yeah. like giving it away and enjoying life.
4: <laughs> I'd be trying to bring you know, workers' rights, I'd be funding some workers' rights political party or something, (laughs) which is why I'll never be a billionaire.
1: Oh, well, you know, me neither. So we can join in on Billionaires Club together. Taylor Lorenz, thank you for all of the work that you do. Thank you for this interview. And uh, to play us out, listeners, here's another clip from the interview presented without comment. We'll
4: be right back. I'm curious kind of how you're thinking, you know, when you think about your, the way that you put out content and the way that you think about growing your media empire. Here,
3: this is the blowjob. job. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what?
1: <laughs> Hysteria is brought to you by Viore. Tired of boring workout gear? Check out Viore. Viore's versatile and comfy products are designed to look great in and outside the gym, whether you're running, training, or even just lying on your couch, enjoying the fact that your two-year-old child is leaving you alone for five blessed minutes. I or, love that for Viore.
2: Is that, you know what? That seems like a
1: real perk of Viore. <laughs> it is. It's perfect. It's cut perfectly for lying down and just savoring a moment to be left alone. It's great. It's <laughs> great. five stars no comment 100% great that's the type that's my favorite sport the new the women's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own grab one of these new colors before they sell out and check out the women's daily legging which features a high waist drawstring tie and upgraded no slip fit all things that are absolutely essential in a legging
2: essential I love these leggings they are because you know like not everybody's the same you know so Mm -hmm. it's like I need a little bit more room around my booty so I size up a little bit, but then it's, t- it's usually too big in my waist. And so now I just just pull that drawstring. Exactly. And I don't, show, I don't show any crack when I bend over.
1: <laughs> Congratulations.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. See, you have your baby and I have my butt crack. <laughs> <laughs> For
1: guys, there's the men's core short, the most comfy lined athletic short out there, and the men's Sunday performance jogger. Oh my gosh, Alyssa, my brother, who I have given Viore performance gear to. Yes won an ultramarathon over the holidays.
2: I saw that. That is so incredible.
1: He ran eighty miles in the freezing cold. I don't think he was wearing his Viori core shorts because that would be dangerous, dangerous, but, but he he loves wearing them to train. And uh, I'm so proud of him. I'm so pr- Viori played a role in his ultramarathon win. <laughs> Uh, Plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint and reducing and offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 onwards. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash hysteria. That's V-U-O-R-I. Dot com slash hysteria. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to Fiori.com slash hysteria and discover the versatility of Viori clothing.
0: Clover
5: gives you the power to run a smarter, faster restaurant. See everything in real time with the kitchen display system. Streamline takeout and delivery with online ordering. With the right tech, quick service is getting even quicker. Clover.
0: Accept payments, run your business, and sell more. For a limited time only, visit
5: Clover.com to get a $450 statement credit on qualified hardware purchases. That's www.Clover.com.
0: For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive, take over Taco Night
1: And welcome back. You're listening to Hysteria, the podcast for people who would love to see the news business unfucked. (laughs) Our first guest is a founding editor of the news publication, The 19th. She's an award-winning journalist who's worked at places like the Associated Press, the LA Times, and the Washington Post. Erin Haynes, welcome to Hysteria. Thanks for having me
5: and not a moment too soon. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, it's good to have you back. I just have to say really quick, the moment in the documentary that we're about to discuss where you're yelling at Steve Kornacki. Yes, we I, loved it. We texted about it. It made oh the text God. chain, Aaron. It was a brilliant moment. I was like, see? look, this brilliant
5: journalist agrees. Just the facts,
2: Steve. Just the facts. I don't want the what-if wall.
5: Punchy Aaron is the best Aaron. We loved it. We
2: absolutely
1: loved it. Our next guest is a filmmaker, entrepreneur, and activist dedicated to advocating, especially for women of color. She's one of the filmmakers behind the documentary about the 19th, Breaking the News. Princess Hairston, welcome to Hysteria.
3: Hello. Thank you for having
1: me. We're so glad that you guys are both here. The documentary yeah. was one of those inspiring things that afterwards I was like, "What? I need to set some goals." I became
2: very emotional. I, this is it's a I great I did. I got teary-eyed like several times. Was it because of my
5: hairstyles?
2: No, those just kept me those kept me locked in, Aaron. Those kept me locked in.
1: Uh, uh, okay, so the documentary starts several years ago when you were preparing to launch the website. What was happening that made you both think, we need to capture this? Like, Aaron, were there any moments you saw cameras around and you thought, this may have been a terrible idea?
5: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but also— uh, you know, we were a startup. You know, we we launched a week before the Iowa caucuses and, frankly, had no PR budget. And so, you know, the documentary filmmakers uh, came to us and said, we'd love to tell the story of the 19th, whatever that's going to be. And we're like, uh, yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, I think this could potentially work out for us and, and get our story out to a much wider audience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we said yes, but also in that moment we're thinking, yes, come follow us on the 2020 campaign trail, right, and and c- help us kind of document this this very consequential election. But, you know, by the time we really got rolling, the pandemic had hit and, you mm-hmm. know, Joe Biden's in the basement and we're trying to figure out, you know, if we're still going to have a newsroom, much less, you know, how to cover it if we are still going to have one. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think we had to pivot. The film team had to pivot. Um, and our story... Became very different than what we initially thought it was going to be. Uh, also, you know, a year's worth of Zoom footage is, you know, maybe compelling for some people, but doesn't necessarily <laughs> make a documentary. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, as as one year turned into two years, turned into three years, there definitely were moments where I was just like, "OMG, um, I can't believe this is still happening," but also. Uh, I will say, now that we are on the other side of this, just having this historical record, not only of our first three years as a newsroom, but also um, really the la- th- th- those three years of our democracy. Like, having mm-hmm. that kind of enshrined in this way um, just feels very special and, and meaningful, and that is not something that a lot of um, news organizations, uh, frankly, uh, can point to and, and have. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, you know, from the documentary team side, uh, you know, we have three directors Heather Courtney, Chelsea Hernandez, and myself. And, you know, as documentarians, when we approach people for a film, you know, people may not know all of that goes into creating a documentary, how many times you have to film them, you know, how you have to film the pivots and the changes. And it was also a global pandemic. So it was so challenging. Um, we were strict about trying to follow COVID-19 protocols. And we were really the only people that were inside the journalist's homes during early stages. And, you know, dual pandemics, shutting down, going back, thinking that journalists are going to be out in the field and going back in. Um, and again, the film started with really how the 19th was going to uh cover the 2020 election different than legacy newsrooms? How were they going to be different? How can we see that change and the necessary change that needs to be seen um, in legacy newsrooms? Um, and the pandemic started, you know, uh, uh, it was like, whoa, what are we dealing with? And the whole trajectory of the film changed, the whole log line of the film changed. And so, you know, started with Heather Courtney, then Heather brought on Chelsea and brought on myself to really mirror what she saw the 19th doing behind the scenes. So our film team very much mirrors the 19th. And we have a lovely producer, Diane Kwan. Um, and we're all, we all have different lived experiences, different backgrounds, different races. So um there were so many challenges along the way. And we were like, You know, hoping that the 19th team would let us keep filming them during (laughs) all of the pivots because they, you know, then Roe versus Wade came in and that was our act three and we had to keep filming. We saw how the 19th was really covering things very differently. So it happens in documentary and usually documentaries take a couple of years. Mm
0: hmm.
2: Erin, the name of your news organization is The 19th, but with an asterisk. Can you explain to listeners the significance of the asterisk and how the stated goal of intersectionality evolved over time?
5: Alyssa, I would be happy to. Thank you so much for asking. (laughs) Setting spike. Uh, So, listen, I mean, yes, so, so, uh, Our newsroom, the 19th, uh, for people who don't know, is named for the 19th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which guaranteed the right for some, but not all women, to have access to um, the vote when when that amendment was passed in 1920. And so, you know, in thinking about this newsroom uh, coming up with what we wanted to stand for and even what to name uh, our newsroom, uh, we did grapple a bit with with the 19th's complicated history uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, what. We came up with what I actually suggested uh, as we were kind of conceiving of, of you know, what the 19th was going to be was to put an asterisk on um, our logo. Right. And so mm-hmm. if you've seen our logo, there's an asterisk, asterisk there in recognition of, frankly, the black women who were thrown under the bus when when the 19th mm-hmm. Amendment was initially passed. And, um, you know, it's in recognition of the Latinas and the Asian-American women who, you know, faced barriers to to the vote because of, of, of um, you know, language issues. It's it's in recognition of the indigenous women who were not even recognized as citizens in 1920 mm-hmm. when the 19th Amendment was passed. And so um you know, for us, that asterisk uh, also helps us as a newsroom kind of think about who continues to be unseen and unheard in our democracy and and that asterisk also has guided us along our journey uh, you know as we now head into year five of the 19th, which is crazy to think about. But um, you know we initially were, we're very much thinking about our newsroom as as being focused on women in politics. But, you know, as we have grown, as we have added folks with different lived experiences, thinking much more broadly about gender and the role of gender uh, in this country and, and the idea that you don't just have to be a woman uh, for your gender to, to impact mm-hmm. um, how you were able to participate in this democracy, that race is also a part of this conversation. The class is also mm-hmm. a part of this conversation. Um, yeah, the, the, the asterisk in a lot of ways just just... Um, is a reminder of that history, but also just kind of a, a north star for us editorially.
2: And Princess, as an outside observer to the launch and the struggles and successes of the nineteenth, did you have a moment where you knew you were observing something truly important, or a moment that you knew
3: would be pivotal? You know, I think it's it's a couple of it's a couple of moments. I, I you know, you got to look at it from a couple of lenses, not mm-hmm. just the changes in the in legacy newsrooms and the media, what the 19th was doing, but they were a startup. They were a startup with women and LGBTQ plus folks. It was, are they really going to make it? I mean, seeing Emily trying to fundraise and she's amazing at it. Um, but truly like newsrooms were closing. Like mm-hmm. we were, we were reading articles like shutdown, shutdown, no longer, employed. I mean, you know, uh, newsrooms, it was just a scary time. So every time that they would grow, like bring on another reporter, and I was like, oh my God, like they're secretly doing it behind the scenes. Like we're watching them, you know, progress in a way that many are not. Um, it was, It also speaks to like the go get a spirit of women period, like what women can do when they lead, when they're in positions to lead. Um what folks from gender non conforming or what gender equity means, you know, and, and how how it's not just the he versus she. Mm-hmm. You know, and so but I do think it is so different. The whole landscape of any change is different when mainly women are at the forefront. And I think that was just truly remarkable to see in the film. And then I think when they were covering Roe versus Wade, that was a huge pivotal moment to see some of those articles, um, how they were different, how the headlines are different from the 19th news Mm -hmm. organization versus other newsrooms. And Mm -hmm. I think those were very pivotal changes or or very pivotal moments to recognize.
1: The documentary... Captures the pitching of the Brianna Taylor story to the 19th staff, and the 19th is the place that broke the story wide. Erin, tell us about stories that you feel urgency to report on.
5: Uh, well, thank you for for mentioning that, uh, especially as we uh, come so close to the anniversary of of of, um, of that tragic event. It was a story that I was really. Proud to be able to tell and and, and proud that, that we as the 19th were able to tell, but obviously one that I wish that I'd never had to write because, you know, she would still be here. Um, you know, for me, uh, a big reason why I wanted to come to the 19th was because I did want to center Black women's stories, you know, not as kind of this side thing that was happening in our in our country, in our democracy, but really as one of the central storylines, absolutely, of our politics, but, but also... Um, in terms of just this moment in time, uh, we are, you know, the the rallying cry in 2020, you know, was listen to Black women. You know, well, what does that look like uh, for us to take that seriously, to, to be able to really talk about uh, their lived experience, to be able to normalize their leadership, right? Um, I wanted to be able to do that uh, in a way that felt consequential. And so, um, you know, when I am able to do that here, it really does feel like my best and highest use as a journalist. And also, you know, I mean, the reality is I was a reporter for much of my career. And so to go from that to being, you know, a founder and also just one of the um, highest ranking Black women, frankly, in, in, um, in journalism and political journalism, like that representation uh, matters a lot to me, too. And it is not something that I take lightly.
1: Mm-hmm. And you were the first journalist to interview VP Kamala Harris after the election. Yeah,
5: what was what was that moment like? You know, fun fun fact, Erin. I am told that I uh, have the record uh, for interviews of, of the vice president at this point mm-hmm. uh, in my career, and that is with us. You know, being a newsroom that's only four years old, so that's kind of cool. But um, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really cool. Seriously, <laughs> I did not realize that, uh, but we do. Um, you know, I do talk to her often because, again, like the, the, the most powerful woman in the country is a black woman. And that is something that uh, I did not think I was going to be able to say in my lifetime. It's certainly not something I thought I was going to cover in my lifetime. You know, landing that interview, we were a really, really young newsroom when that happened. I mean, literally, our website had gone live the same week that we did that oh interview, gosh. right, wow. and so you know, I didn't know if she was still gonna do it, you know, uh, you know, then candidate Biden nominates her to be the vice president. I'm like, oh gosh, is her number even still gonna be working, but it was <laughs> you know and, and 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 she absolutely not only committed um to doing that thirty minute interview with with us, but um we were the first outlet that she spoke to and and that was absolutely intentional uh, I think because of the way that I had. Covered her. Uh, I covered her um, presidential campaign, and actually, the very first story that I wrote for the nineteenth was about why I thought that that her presidential campaign didn't have a chance to take off, namely because of her race and gender, not because of the other things that some other outlets were writing about in terms of her mo- message or, or momentum or money or any of those things. Which, Erin, I just have to say she had the best announcement event and best announcement
2: speech of anybody who launched that year. It was it was mm-hmm.
5: a front-runner kind of event. Yeah. It really was. Mm-hmm. And totally. so to be at that point a year later where voters didn't even get to weigh in on her uh, in, a, in a primary, uh, you know— Really unpacking what that was about, uh, and then mm-hmm. just the trajectory. Several months later, you know, race and gender go from being her biggest liability as a presidential candidate to her biggest asset in that whole beepstakes conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Being able to write about that, I uh, I felt like really did kind of position me well to to land that interview. Uh, so. For the 19th, it was certainly a big deal. And for me personally, as, as, uh, as a journalist, it was a big, pretty big career uh, mm-hmm. moment. Erin, you said in an interview
2: on the day the election was finally called of Kamala Harris, quote, history delayed will not be history denied. And you did something incredibly historic that actually wasn't part of the documentary. You traveled with the VP on her first trip to Africa. So one, what did you see? What was that like? And two... Do
5: you think Kamala is covered fairly? Oh okay. All right, so we're gonna get into it. Uh, so there you, go. Uh, you know that so that that trip to Africa was actually it was just about um almost a year ago uh, a year ago mm-hmm. next month uh, was when that trip happened. And you know, it's I, I actually knew when um you know, when she became Vice President, I knew that there were two big trips that I absolutely wanted to go on. like if I did nothing else, I knew that she was going to go to the continent at some point, and I know that she's going to go to India at some point. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see what that looked like, how her leadership was being regarded on the world stage, right? And she's been on the world stage a lot, you know, since she's been vice president. But 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 that uh, that trip felt significant to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also my first time on the continent, so per- personally, it, it it had significance. Um, but I wanted, you know, f- f- there was also just a lot of chatter at that time about um, her leadership. Where is she? What is she doing? You know, that kind of thing. And so. Uh, I wanted to show what that looked like uh, outside of of this country and outside of this context, right? Because I think for a lot of people, the role of vice president normally in this country, that's not something that we feel like is very important. But, But for the second most important person in the United States to go to these African countries, like she's representing the United States for these people. She's representing the possibility of partnership and opportunity and all these other things. So she was a very big deal. Uh, to those people, and and to be, for example, kind of in the press motorcade and going from location to location and just seeing the streets lined with all of these Black people who just wanted to get a glimpse of her, right? Welcoming her to the continent as their sister. Um, She had a familial connection in Zambia where her grandfather had done uh, some governmental work. Uh, So it was a a different way to kind of get to know her, but also to see her leadership in a way that, that we really don't see it here. Uh th- there were, you know, a handful of us that were part of the um American press corps that were following her around, but the the African media that turned out to cover her on all of these stops, I mean, dwarfed us by many, many, many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was really um that was really a moment for me um that reframed just kind of globally, uh, you know, what that what that discussion looks like. And look, I mean, in terms of how I think she's been covered, you know, I think it's absolutely legitimate just given, you know, a couple of historic things about the nature of this administration, namely that, you know, President Biden is the oldest president that we've ever had, and also that she is a historic first in this kind of traditional role, right? So this is somebody who could potentially be president, you know, depending Mm -hmm. on events. And so, does that mean that we have an obligation to get to know this person? Does that mean that we have an obligation to think about how this person might govern? Absolutely. Is that the conversation that I think that we're always having? I do not. <laughs> and I think that 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 we uh you know as a political uh press corps there can be coverage that only furthers the othering of her mm-hmm. when what mm-hmm. that coverage what our coverage needs to be doing is familiarizing people with her and who she is, right? Uh, to say, you know, when, when the American people say, well, you know, I don't really know where she is. I don't really know what she's doing. Uh, how much of that is on us as, as, a, as a press corps? We're making choices about who to cover. Traditionally, we don't cover a vice president. But, you know, for somebody in a historic role like this, uh, people want to see what she's doing. They don't care what it is that she's doing. They just right. want to see her doing it because nobody that looks like her has ever done it before.
1: Princess, you specifically work in every aspect of your life and career to create inclusive spaces. So can you talk to us about how you saw the 19th evolve over the course of shooting, from how they interacted as an organization to what they covered? You know, you
3: saw how the 19th really started or did the work to be inclusive is some of the early discussions where people with lived experiences may not have understood how important this story was, you know, having those important discussions around the Central Park Karen, Brianna Taylor, is this an important story for us to tell? You know, I, I think it's also how, how they listened to each other, how they were growing and listening to each other, how the gender equity discussion came in when Kate was brought on and how Kate challenged the leadership at the 19th to rethink how they were um, even engaging amongst each other. Mm -hmm. The language that was being used, these are all the things that most people in orgs and corporations have not been doing. Mm
1: -hmm. You
3: know, um, it it is always the people who come from marginalized communities that are doing the work to affect change. And, you know, it's daunting. And -hmm. you see that in moments. It's daunting to cover race or speak up uh, in regards to race at a workplace, It's also hard for that as far as gender and LGBTQ plus rights and um, really having those discussions so you can see the change happening. You can Mm -hmm. be a part of the change happening. Um, That's what I do as a filmmaker. I do a lot of inclusive work with helping production companies build teams. Are you telling a story that centers a, you know, someone from a black community or black and brown families or disabled community, where are the people in those key roles that can help you shape that story? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for most people, they have never been challenged. It's just been the main dominant um group of people who are often not people of color who have been in those key roles to shepherd those stories. And they always they have not always been correctly um you know, shaped. They, they just have not been. You can tell when people from the community, that's not really our experience. Mm-hmm. So it's not an authentic story. So, what is the issue with having those inclusive voices, those voices that can shape that story accurately? You know, what are we doing to build those teams? Mm-hmm.
1: And finally, um, send us out on a high note. Uh, everything feels a little heavy from time to time, <laughs> uh, and doing the work that you do. Probably takes a toll on just your mental health and your social battery. How do you both
3: find joy and disconnect from work? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, I probably should invest in a therapist. <laughs> it, it, it's a lot of work. I should, I should do that, Erin. Um, it is, you know, I I contribute a lot of my poise and grace to my upbringing with my parents because they both went through segregation school segregated (laughs) to schools unsegregated. It, it's only one generation away. And so despite all the challenges they went through, they still taught myself and my brothers love. Mm -hmm. It was never like hatred or these group of folks did this to us. So you, we, you know, it's like a rebound effect of anger and war. It was just, how can you be your best self to improve humanity so i think that just something within my culture which i what i'm used to from a lot of my uncles aunts grandparents it was just like what are we doing to improve culture like it's it's improve humanity it it, it despite all the hatred and harm that we have faced we still move forward in a positive light and find that way to st- stay positive. What can you do? Don't always say what this person should be doing or that. Okay, so what can you do to help facilitate that change? And I, I you know, it's definitely hard. There's, You've got to find a way to heal. As a person who um, does that, it, it does require a lot of activism work. A lot of people don't have it in there. They're tired. They're, everyone's different. So if I know that I can use my voice and I'm not that afraid to speak up for change or maybe – Come to someone and say, hey, what you said at a workplace was extremely harmful and here are the reasons why. Maybe no one's ever told them that. And Mm -hmm. someone did tell me that. Thank you for pulling me to the side and giving me that breakdown on how what I've been saying could be harmful to, to other people in the room. So, you know, I think everyone should find their own way where they can affect change in a positive way that can move us forward through humanity. Mm. Well, Erin Haynes
1: and Princess Hairston, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was a really great interview. Uh, Listeners, the 19th documentary Breaking the News is now out on PBS, and you can watch it for free. And we are going to link it in show notes, and you definitely should watch it. We loved it. It's inspiring and great, and thank you both for all you do. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for all y'all
5: are doing for democracy.
1: All right, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, more hysteria.
0: Do you want in on a secret that high-performance marketing teams use to drive ROI? AdRoll gives your business the marketing edge you need to make hitting your goals easier while saving time. AdRoll optimizes ad campaigns across display, native, and social media channels all in one place. Deduplicate conversion attribution across channels and even trigger emails based on user interactions. Sign up at adroll.com ROI to join the club.
1: And welcome back. You're listening to Hysteria, the podcast for haters. I don't know why that made me laugh. I saw a, because we're haters. It's the truth. Um, I saw a tweet that a lot of people, like, put it on their, like, Insta stories. And one of the – the, the tweet was basically, like, it's a great time to be a hater. Many things are bad and many things <laughs> many things suck. And I was like, yeah, I guess I, I need to embrace the fact that I'm fully, like, a hater. It's fine. It's fine. It's fun. I like we, haters. We hate things that are not
2: terribly important.
1: Also, I feel like if you are a hater, you cannot have a – fragile relationship with the things that you like. You have to be able to handle it when other people hate your stuff. Because yes. otherwise you are just like, like not not a not a not a fun hater. Like it's it's fun like I hated Oppenheimer. I thought it was a very You did hate Oppenheimer. I haven't movie. seen it. Because it, was it like, seems not for it me. is watching Hollywood's white male A list read a Wikipedia entry with a really <laughs> cool sequence of a bomb blowing up in the middle. And that it, it, it does it it's it is almost Ardently tropey in a way that doesn't advance the medium of film in any way. Uh, I thought that it was it was shot well. And again, I thought the bomb sequence was good and Robert Downey Jr. was good. But everything else, I was at one point I turned to Josh and I was like, is this supposed to be a good movie? And mm, yeah. Uh, Go ahead and watch it. It's not your though. cup
2: of tea. If
1: you like it, I won't be hurt. I will know you're wrong, but I won't be hurt. <laughs> And that's what it is, in my view, to be a socially responsible hater. You have to be able to handle it when people don't like the things you like or when people like the things you don't like. Um, Okay, before we get to I Feel Petty, Sani Petty? Are we going to be sane this week? I think we're both petty this week.
2: Little, I'm feeling a little petty. Let's get the announcements for the class out of the way first. In the lead up to Biden's upcoming State of the Union address, I sat down with old pals and fellow Obama alums John Favreau and Cody Keenan on the latest episode of Inside 2024 to reminisce on what it was like writing Obama's speech, what makes a good speech, and what Biden should do for his speech. If you're listening, President Biden, and want to subscribe to Friends of the Pod for access, head to crooked. Okay, I think we're both feeling pretty petty. Alyssa, are you feeling petty? I am. Okay. I've spent some time uh, down the reality TV rabbit hole because the world is a dumpster fire and I need something that truly takes my mind away from uh, the day-to-day. And so I I binged. I've started the first six episodes or so of this season's Love is Blind, Charlotte. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aaron, here's my thing. Okay, now listen, I'm not gonna pretend like I'm above it all, right? I've watched Love Is Blind Sweden. I've watched all the Loves. Bl- I- I've Love Is Blind Brazil is teed up next, and Japan is not far behind. Okay, I think the premise of this show is so interesting because I don't really think Love Is Blind. No, I No, mean, we've you know established to talk about that. We've but established I don't think it's blind.
1: not. We've established that it's pretty much not. But but
2: Aaron, the caliber of people, specifically the dudes, I just, they they seem to try to find the most troubled, emotionally men who have previously only sought women for their physique, their physical appearance. Mm-hmm. And they're like, here we go. We're going to put you in a room where you can't see these women and you date them through a wall who are interesting and I don't know, have hot voices. Is that the thing? I don't really know. But they are trying to... um make fetch happen with some of these guys. And it's not going to happen, and it's painful to watch. I'm not going to say the caliber of the women is that much higher, though there is my favorite this season is A.D. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I like the man that she is dating, but I like A.D. She's got a lot of sass. She's very smart. I like her family, everything about her. But, I mean, Aaron, when, when are we going to find some just, like, higher quality dudes? I mean, the, there was one guy who honestly... <laughs> One Okay, couple things. One, I feel like they have gotten to a point where we're missing out on huge swaths of cast members. Like, there are all these people back in the house when they're back from their dates, but we're only talking to, like, three or four of them, mm-hmm. except for a few ancillary women, for example, who bring over tissues when someone's heart has been broken. So I feel like they are <laughs> self-selecting the experience I personally would like to DJ myself. It's like, I don't know. Give me that woman in the corner. Uh-huh. I want to know her story. Did she not go on one date? <laughs> (laughs) It's like it used to be much broader. Do you know what I mean? Like if you go back to the first episodes, you got to see everybody. And now it feels like they're really cherry-picking. Like of course the people on the show are cherry-picked. But it feels really like like after maybe season five or six on The Real World, when they just exclusively cast for conflict, Mm -hmm. this feels similar. Okay. So here's
1: my question about the quality of the guys issue. Is it because – the type of guy who in the year of our Lord 2023, it's 2024, but you know, they would have auditioned in 2023. The type of guy who would audition for a reality dating show is a self selecting low caliber guy. I'm just gonna say we have to stop letting people who are under 27 onto reality that is dating the other competition point. shows. That
2: is the other point. Your brain Most isn't done way too young cooking.
1: Your brain, your prefrontal cortex not fully developed. You're bad at making decisions clinically. You are clinically bad at making decisions. Uh, And you should probably just be spending this time reading books and learning lessons and, like, possibly brushing up on whatever foreign language you took in middle
2: school because the window is closing for you to get fluent, right? I'm just going to be honest. This is, like, a very, very important point because if I think of Alyssa when she was 25— who couldn't date, who literally dated some of the worst people to walk the planet, should the answer to my bad dating have been, let's go get married to someone I've never seen before?
1: No. No.
2: No, <laughs> no. And I feel
1: the same way about the Bachelor franchise. Like, it is so uninteresting to me now because it's a bunch of people where it's like, oh, children, you are making a child's decision right now. You are Give showing... Give me people who've seen some shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not even saying, like, I just, just above 27. That's all. Just brain fully formed. Above 27. Brain fully form, formed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. I think, you know, it could be that Love is Blind is just like self selecting the people that try out for it are just not great people. Or it could right. be that, that maybe there just aren't that many great
2: guys out there. There might not be, but we're also talking about this today because the rest of the season drops today. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. It totally does. Um, I need to watch that show on, like, double speed because I, I really start to get annoyed with how much time Netflix feels entitled to waste.
2: I agree. It does mine. not need to be a full hour every episode. However, I do set up my weekend chores when there's like a new season has dropped. I was like, okay, so I need to do laundry. I need to fold sheets. I'm gonna sit down. I'm gonna go through two episodes <laughs> of Love Is Blind and then sure. go on with my day. Right. Right. Well, it's one of those things you don't have to look at the entire time. No, by, no,
1: by no, design. No. Um. Okay. I have a uh, petty. This is not really that petty, but whatever. I'm living in this state of, like, generalized existential dread okay. when, it, when it comes to technology and the way that it makes our lives worse and that yes. nobody seems to be able to stop it whatsoever despite the fact that we're like, hey, this is going to make a lot of people's lives worse. Um, autonomous driving taxis, for example. No. 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 Uh-uh, don't need it. We don't need fully self-driving cars. No. Why? 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 Who is this nope. benefiting? This is benefiting like eight people. Like the people that that whatever. This is benefiting eight people. I am terror. I'm terrified of getting hit with a car in self-driving mode Will some idiot bro totally. naps on his way home from work or like sets it up so there's like fake weights on the steering wheel. So
2: they think that it's no, absolutely not. Who does I think we yeah, need you to know have- who else doesn't want it, Aaron? Hmm. Someone who is surrounded by really large pickup trucks on the road. <laughs> I That's don't need those to ever thing. be self-driving. No thank you. No. And then we have like
1: the Cybertruck, which is just like this <clears> shard of shit careening down nope. our highways. No. Nope. It, it's it no. Okay. So we need to have some sort of a tech court that determines yes. before any new technology is introduced to the market. We call it a Luddite court. Whatever. The Luddites were right. So, um that determines how many people does this benefit versus how many people can we see it potentially harming from jump. Like there's some technology that has like, where you're like, oh, this was an unintended consequence of a technology that was altruistic in design. Right. Right. Um, But AI, generative AI, this makes like five people slightly more money and it Mm -hmm. fucks everyone else. No. No, we real don't upside. need it. We don't need it. Okay, here. I can name like 50 downsides of AI. Like uh, like falsified court documents generated by like paralegal AI that is like making up citations, which is something that really happened. I think Rudy Giuliani's lawyer yeah. actually submitted an AI generated uh, yes. like filing that contained fake stuff. Um it is making it so children do not have to learn how to write. Or answer questions, uh, or read, <laughs> or read. It is also making it so that uh, so it, it's also making it so that that AI generated deep fake porn or photos, yep. or even for like political purposes, like political mudslinging ads that make it look like a candidate did something they didn't actually do. AI could take your likeness and generate an advertisement for something that you've never used and generate profit off of your image, like.
2: No, no, no. I. No. You know, if you look at other technology, it's not like we're anti-technology. Other technology would pass the test. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, electric cars. Good. Mm-hmm. Some of them have batteries that blow up. Bad. But it is a lower risk proposition. Terrific. Do they need to drive themselves? Absolutely not.
1: Mm-hmm. No, there is no reason why. Why do I need to be able to link my phone to a toaster? I don't. I don't need a smart appliance. I don't need a smart home. The dumb home, the dumb appliance. Like, let's. uh, Why
2: are we making everything hackable? Can I just say something? Not to sound like that retro bitch, but like, okay. Back when I was growing up, my car had like four buttons and a tape cassette player, and Mm -hmm. like it mostly worked. Mm -hmm. My car now was like possessed by a poltergeist last week and changed the radio station every 10 seconds to things I had <laughs> stations I had never played in my life. I got so scared. I had to pull over the side of the road and reboot my car twice. Oh my god, my car mm-hmm. freaked out last week too. And
1: I yelled at my husband cuz I told him he was messing around with the buttons before it was ready. <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe it was like the car ghost that was just that we are making ourselves more vulnerable, mm-hmm. more hackable. And less uh, human by introducing these technologies in a way, and I feel like our elected officials are just like, "Oh, well, we can't stop it." They just, Sorry, it's like reactive <laughs> rather than proactive. No, we need a court full of people under the age of forty. So I'm omitting myself because I'm yeah. beyond the cutoff. Please, I am extremely other online. Take the lead. But, uh, look, I've been a part of two union drives and one union uh, like. Contract renegotiation. I'm I'm set for meetings for the rest of my life. You guys get <laughs> under forties. You guys going to have this court where you're like, is this going to help us? Is this going to actually help us, or is this just going to make billionaires like slightly richer, more billiony? Yeah, we don't need that. We should be eating the billionaires and uh, smashing AI in whatever way. Oh, Alyssa, I saw something online this week that made me think of you and. What? Sure enough, before I even texted you about it, you had texted us about it, and it was a clothing campaign.
2: <gasps> Our girl Monica Lewinsky taking it to Reformation. She did a she did a collaboration with Reformation, the You've Got the Power campaign that aims to encourage any apathetic voters to get back out there and vote. And let me tell you, she looked fucking hot. She looked so good. Those clothes. I'm. I cannot wait to shop the collection. Reformation. Mm-hmm. You've got me. It's
1: a sleigh, as they. It is. As it's a sleigh. Say. No, she looks. She looks so great, and the the collection looks great, and it's for a good cause. So, congrats to Monica, and good move, Reformation.
2: Totally. And also, it's not just. I always feel bad saying someone looks hot. It is much more than that. It is about someone who is reclaiming. Her identity online that other people have tried to take from her. And she's putting herself out there in the way that she wants to be seen. And that is what is hot.
1: At this point, if you're still targeting Monica Lewinsky, you look like a huge fucking asshole. Like yeah, you, like, a, like a real, like, you know, cheap, hacky stuck-in-the-90s, aged-out-of-relevance asshole, uh, because Monica's awesome. Okay, that is just about all the time we have, but before we go, I wanted to give a shout-out to a listener, a listener weighed in on the Discord. I'm not active on this server, but I wanted to pop in and say I love Hysteria so, so much. Every week, it's like taking a cozy seat in a safe little club, and it makes me feel sane. It's also super funny despite the depressing realities, LOL. And Erin and Alyssa are so good together. Oh, we know. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Love hearing them make guest appearances on any other pods, too. Thank y'all. Shout out to this wonderful Discord member. And if you want to chat with us on the Discord, because Alyssa and I both pop in there from time to time. We do pop in. Um, and you want to access a bunch more exclusive content, consider going to crooked.com slash friends to subscribe. All right. Uh, well, I want to thank Taylor Lorenz, Erin Haynes, and Princess Harrison for stopping by to chat with us today. Alyssa, thank you for being my ride or die. And listeners, if you want to get in touch, hysteria at crooked.com. You are the reason we keep making this show, and there will yes. be more hysteria for you next week. Don't forget to follow us at Crooked Media on IG, Twitter, and TikTok. Subscribe to Hysteria on YouTube for access to video versions of your favorite segments and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a nice review. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our senior producer. Our executive producer is me, Erin Ryan. And Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer. Fiona Pestana is our associate producer. The show is engineered and edited by Jordan Cantor. We get audio support from Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our video producers are Rachel Gayeski and Megan Patzel. And thank you to Julia Beach, Ewa Okolate, Adia Hill, and David Tolls for production support every week.
0: Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view?